0: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel. And today I'm speaking with Natalia Molina, author of How Race is Made in America, Immigration, Citizenship, and the Historical Power of Racial Scripts, published by the University of California Press in 2014. Dr. Molina is an associate professor in the departments of history and urban studies at the University of California, San Diego, where she also holds the position of associate vice chancellor for faculty diversity and equity. Professor Molina's research and teaching interests focus on the intersections of race, gender, culture, and citizenship. She is the author of the award-winning book, Fit to Be Citizens, Public Health and Race in Los Angeles, 1879 to 1939, which received the Norris and Carol Hunley Book Prize by the Pacific Coast Branch of the American Historical Association. Among many other positions, awards, and accolades, Professor Molina is on the board of Cal Humanities and is a distinguished lecturer for the Organization of American Historians. Hello, Natalia, and welcome to New Books and Latino Studies.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Of course. I'm, I'm pleased for you to be with us. And I was wondering if you would begin our discussion today by telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, um, as you mentioned, my first book focused on Los Angeles. And part of that uh, reason was, fun because it focused on Mexicans and Mexican-Americans, and Los Angeles was the largest receiving city for those communities. But also because I'm from Los Angeles, uh, from the Echo Park section of Los Angeles. And in my article in the Pacific Historical Review that I published a couple years ago now, titled Examining Chicana, Chicana History Through a Relational Lens," I explained that uh, growing up in Echo Park really had a large impact on me in terms of thinking about re- race relationally. Um, it was a multi- multi-ethnic, multi-racial area, there were Mexican immigrant families like my own, um, my best friend. On one side uh, of my house was Colleen Patricia, Irish-Mexican. My other good friend was Katie, uh, who was working class white. Uh, we had Vietnamese, Chinese immigrants, very few African-Americans. And it really got me thinking about um, always sort of uh, trying to figure out why our experiences growing up were quite different. We experienced school differently, the kind of messages that we got at school, the kind of resources that were developed and directed towards us.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, And then I ended up going to school at UCLA. And there I took classes in history, a lot of Latin American history classes, and women's studies. And I think women's studies was one of the first places that I finally got this vocabulary to understand these raced and gendered experiences I had. And so I became hooked. You know, I think like like many Chicanos, I I had visions of being a doctor, or at least I was a family. If you're going to college, you should be a doctor or lawyer. But right. once uh-huh. I started taking those history women's and women's studies classes, uh, I, I really stuck with those. And the other thing I really liked about the women's studies classes at UCLA was that they were very much focused around intersectionality, around uh-huh. a, a serious interrogation of the intersectionality of race, class, gender, sexuality. And so you had a women of color in literature class. You had women artists. You had, you know, women in social movements. And it was always seen from a relational perspective. And all this Mm -hmm. shaped my work. I ended up going to graduate school at the University of Michigan. Um, And at that point, I had to decide, was I going to do interdisciplinary? like I had done as an undergrad with with women's studies or disciplinary program like I had also done as an undergraduate Mm -hmm. and at that point I decided to go the disciplinary route because at that point in time it just seemed the easier route to get a job and I don't think that's necessarily true anymore Mm -hmm. Uh, what was great about history at Michigan was that it was very closely tied to the American culture program Mm -hmm. which was run by George Sanchez at the time, who was my dissertation advisor and, as you know, is now at USC. So it was a really great experience.
0: Thank you for that background. And um, I appreciate, I always appreciate hearing how one comes to, you know, decide upon their, uh, and particularly within academia, their disciplinary spine, if you will, or, or pursuit. And, um, I'd, I, you know it makes me think of why I chose the historical discipline as well and i wasn't I wasn't too aware getting my start in community college that interdisciplinary programs like American studies programs even existed um I think community college is still very much structured in you know the disciplinary you know confines and and what uh, but I eventually I think I settled on history as well because I saw I could do a lot of things with it you know that uh, I was interested in sociology and political science and all these other things and I, I thought you know history seemed to be the one one of the disciplines where you had all sorts of people having these conversations that are pulling from the literatures that I was interested in. So it's nice to hear that you, you seem to came come to your interest in your, your uh, focus as a historian, you know, in a, in kind of a similar way that you were able to identify a a program that could allow you to, you know, combine a lot of interests. As you mentioned, intersectionality, you could see how, what you'd experienced, you could actually study that pursuit. So thank you for that. Um, about the book, can you tell us a little bit about how you decided to write uh, How Race is, is Made in America?
1: Uh, decide is a loose <laughs> term to use here. <laughs> uh, you know, for your first book as a historian, you know, uh, history is a book discipline. So if you are a historian, if you get a job at a research university or a, a university that requires you to uh, publish and especially if publishing is a big part of that job, and you're a historian, you're supposed to publish a book in order to get tenure. Right. And oftentimes for history, that dis- is, your book is based on your dissertation.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: for the first book, I had, you know, I had time off from, <laughs> I didn't have a job yet. Uh, yeah, it was, I was sometimes a teaching assistant. or um, But for the most part, I had time to do my research um, in a sustained and focused way and writing in a more sustained and focused way.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: for your second book, by then you, you have a job. You sometimes have a family. You have tenure. You have a lot of other responsibilities, board responsibilities, um, responsibilities with community with organizations, that kind of thing, besides your teaching. And so that, <clears throat> that book I pursued in a less kind of sustained, focused way. I did a lot of research at the National Archives in Washington, D.C. National Archives in Washington, D.C. is kind of like the attic of America. It's where we keep all our memories. It's where mm-hmm. we keep our stories. It's where we keep our stories. And when I was writing the first book, I did research there, and I remember coming across these sources, these historical sources that discussed uh, let's say, immigration, Mexican immigration uh, in the nineteen of Mexican field workers working, harvesting beets in Colorado or picking cantaloupes in the Imperial Valley. And I remember reading the books that had used these sources that talked about Mexican immigrants. But what was different when you first saw the source, when I looked at the sources, was they weren't just talking about Mexicans. We're also talking about uh, Asian immigrants. They were mm-hmm. talking about the Japanese who own those farms. Or they were talking about the Philippines who were also hired to work alongside them. And I realized, like I did in my first book, that because much of what we, um, the way the disciplines are shaped, we talk about Chicano studies history, African-American history, Asian-American history. and We tend to look at these groups separately, Mm
2: -hmm. but
1: that's not the way we experience life. You know, we can think of our own lives that, you know, even if you live in a somewhat segregated neighborhood, and even if you went to a somewhat segregated school, probably your parents didn't work in a segregated workplace, or somebody traveled outside the neighborhood, or you went to concerts somewhere else. At some point, you were, you know, interacting with different people. And it's the same thing when you look at sea sources. So that became kind of the the kernel for the book.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the other thing that really drove the book now, is, is, is trying to write the book, was is questions. And I've always just been fascinated by this different trajectory that Mexicans experience in terms of race and assimilation and Americanization to, say, um, Irish immigrants. Right. So if you study European immigration, if you study immigration, especially if you studied it sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, and many people are kind of still um are under this illusion that immigrants come to the US, they work hard, they learn English, they send their kids to American schools, they um learning you know, they, they become Christian maybe. Um and by, you know, two or three generations they're Americanized. Mm-hmm. And that's the way a lot of the earlier literature on immigration went. But when um, the Chicano movement happened, the Black Power movement, these social movements of the 1960s happened, and we started studying these groups in school in more the 70s, 80s, and definitely by the 90s, we realized that those groups didn't have quite the same assimilation patterns. Right. Um, and, and you, so it's not a surprise right that when somebody who's my Again, even if the third, fourth generation will tell you, yes, yeah, people sometimes will ask me where I'm from. No, where I'm really from. Right. <laughs> or how did you learn to speak English? There's always a way that they're not quite American.
2: Mm-hmm. And I was
1: always curious how that happened, especially because if you go back to the 1924 Immigration Act, that act put Asians on quotas, and so mm-hmm. they weren't even allowed to immigrate to the U.S. Um, or centralized, become citizens. Um, although now we now have the stereotype of Asians as minorities. Right. Um, Europeans were the ones who were put on this quota system, though in a kind of hierarchy. And so Irish, Greeks, they were, you know, for example, were were low on Italians, were low on that hierarchy. And now many um, immig- people of that immigrant background are thought of as white? Mexicans weren't put on those quotas. So how is it that Mexicans are so often thought of as not quite American? Right. And the, the, the point of the book was to try to answer that, but because I also had this relational, this way of thinking about, well, who else was around Mexicans and how did, um, did the presence affect uh, the way that we think about Mexicans?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, how, how did that happen? So it was kind of a way of asking a question and using that way of thinking about race relationally as a
0: lens to answer it. Right. Well, and that's what, um, one of the things that really attracted me to the book is the title itself, uh, How Race is Made in America. Because particularly when I started looking at it and knowing somewhat of, knowing of your work beforehand, I thought it was a really it was rather provocative because when I tend to think, and I think maybe perhaps when, uh, a lot of people tend to think about uh, the history of race or racism or whatever that is when they hear the word race in America as you mentioned earlier they think more along that black white paradigm and so initially seeing a book that was here you know going to be essentially talking about immigration and Mexican Americans and some other groups i thought wow you know i'm interested to see how this book is going to go and uh, where it's going to take this discussion and you so you mention the relational the relational nature of um, of both, well, first of all, your experiences growing up with various, uh, with people of dip from various ethno and cultural and racial backgrounds. Uh, you introduce a concept in the book, um, that of, that being that of racial scripts that helps you to emphasize this racial lens that you're talking about. Uh, can you explain the concept of racial scripts a little bit more? Uh, we're going to talk about it more as we get through some examples, but can you, uh, give us just maybe a, a, a sample a understanding before we get into the, the book itself? About um, why it's necessary for why you coded that word, and then why it's necessary again.
2: Yes, of
1: course. Uh, so, the, one, the central goal of the book is to get us to see these connections among racialized groups. And I'll just clarify, because you, I think, right now, like ethno racial and cultural, <laughs> and I use racialized, and somebody else will use ethnic and race. And so, different, different um, schools of, of thought we'll use different terms but we're, we're all trying to mean the same thing
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, we're trying to get at ra- race and ethnicity and because I like to always think about you know as a historian how race and ethnicity change over time how it's a constructed right. category I use the term racial life to show it's this kind of dynamic process right. uh, but to better understand how race operates relationally I really like the use of the term racial scripts Um. And I see it operating in three main ways. And so the first is that racial scripts highlight how racial groups are acted upon. So kind of that, you know, what in history we call that that um, top-down action, how groups are acted upon by a range of principles. And these can be anybody from institutional actors to ordinary citizens. So this might be judges or lawmakers, sheriffs, border patrol agents, public health officials, employers. Co-workers or even your neighbors, and I mm-hmm. write about all these people in the book. Right. These are all people that are writing into the INS, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, saying, "Hey, what about my neighbor? Um, are they Mexican? Uh, are they are they white? Can they be a citizen? Because they say they're Mexican. Uh, they're, they're not black, but they're kind of brown. And you know, it's this way that we employ all these things to think about race.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and then I discussed racial scripts endure as both cultural representations. Other they're built in structures and practices. And this is where I'm getting kind of uh, academic-y, so I want to mm-hmm. make sure that I don't lose any of your your
2: listeners.
1: Um, and so, you know, it, for structural things, we often think about um, structure as kind of being the scaffolding of race, right. things like laws and customs, policies, uh, while cultural representations are more about the ways in which we see and experience well, race as well as um, how we talk about it, a discourse around it. I used the 1924 Immigration Act as an example. That's a structural part of race.
2: because mm-hmm. if Those
1: lawmakers passed it, and then they got voted out of office. They eventually died. But that law stayed in place. So whether or not the people that occupied those offices believed that we should ban Asians and continue to uh, keep European immigrants on a quota, they had to abide by that, and so that's the structural part.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The cultural representation part of how we think about race, those are more like the images that we have, that the way that we talk about a bit. Um, kind of, sometimes there's stereotypes, but they're often uh, representations that rely on assumptions, conscious or not. Mm-hmm. The way that we start to think about race is very common sense, uh, very common place. Like, oh, yeah, that's just the way it's always been. Um, although, you know, and I'll give you examples example throughout the book, uh, from the book as we speak, we'll see that these ideas about race change over time. So there's right. nothing common sense about race. The second part is that all groups um, are racialized, but we don't often share, see the shared connection. And that was a big motivating part of writing the book. You know, growing up in Echo Park, having, you know, being kids where kids don't really censor, filter what they say, mm-hmm. and you have, you know, racial jokes going around. And even as a kid, I thought, why are Mexicans telling jokes about blacks? Why are the Asians telling jokes about
2: Mexicans? Why
1: are, you know, why is the Vietnamese kid teasing the Irish about, you know, and, they, and the Polish kid is the front of everyone's jokes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're all sitting here in this very working class neighborhood that no one wants to enter they think of it as the ghetto.
2: Right. We
1: have this great commonality to us that people have these divisions, um, mm-hmm. although, you know, in that kind of setting, it's, it's joked around about. But as we know in lots of other settings, it's not. And so the idea about racial scripts is that we want to be able to see the connections between the groups mm-hmm. and see, you know what, that immigrant act, it didn't affect just Mexicans, it actually affected Asians, and because of that, we have this common connection.
2: Right.
1: And then the last part, uh, but it was racial history, uh, Chicano history, you always have to talk about agency and resistance. And, mm-hmm. Okay, Even if there's a lot directed at you, what do you do in response to that? Do you, I mean, do you send the president a letter? Do you um, start a campaign? Do you have a protest? What exactly do you do? Um, and so I call those counterscripts. So just as racial scripts have a seeming persuasiveness, resistance also has a long fetch. Right. And so we see this in this counter scripts. And these can be daily expressions of compassion and solidarity. They could be big public protests. But they are, you know, main ways of of showing resistance, showing solidarity with other groups.
0: Definitely. Thank you for that explanation. And you, you mentioned earlier, and you've mentioned a few times now, the the landmark piece of of immigration uh, policy that was passed in 1924, which is is where the book essentially begins, and that being the Johnson Reed Immigration Act. And you mentioned how this uh, key part of this legislation was this quota system. It more of, uh, as my understanding is, I believe it, it it tweaked it. It was initiated earlier, I think, in 1921. Um, you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, but it so it, it kept this quota system to where it drastically reduced the amount of, uh, immigrants coming from Southern Eastern Europe. And then as you mentioned as well, it pretty much flat out barred, uh, immigrants from, uh, any, you know, Asian you know territory, whether it be Japan or, or, or China uh, or whatnot. Now, um, naturally Mexicans, you also mentioned were excluded or, you know, from this quota system. They weren't included in it. The whole, in fact, the whole Western hemisphere escaped, the, escaped the quota restrictions. Yet, Uh, As you begin the book, you start to talk about how even with this exclusion of the Western Hemisphere, um, after around 1924 and and shortly thereafter, uh, particularly between the years of 1925 to 1930, Mexicans became the focal point of immigration debates. We discuss why that happened. Why is it that Mexicans became this this uh, central focus of immigration debates after 1924? And, and and since you just explained you know the racial scripts concept, can you give give us a good, an example of some of the scripts that were used in these debates?
1: Um, so this is one of these fascinating things. You know, I think for a lot of us uh, that are interested in doing Chicano history, like Latino history. We could get frustrated um, in the ways that it was taught, especially at the K through twelve level. Usually, that history is taught from east coast. Uh, we we barely ever get <laughs> to the west coast because the school year ends. Um, if you went to school in California, you might in fourth grade have studied California history, but they don't exactly tell you how California came to be, and it was through uh, the U.S. war with Mexico in which the U.S. received a third third of Mexico's land in the Mm -hmm. Treaty of Guadalupe that that settled it. And so I bring this up because uh, much of that earlier immigration legislation was made um, with an East Coast focus also. You know, we didn't have communications in the same ways, And so, you know, the the largest point of entry at that point is uh, Ellis Island, and so the immigrants that they're worried about are these European immigrants. Uh, they were sought after very much in the late 1800s and the early 1900s when the U.S. was at the peak of industrialization, building railroads, building factories, um, you know, needing those factory workers. And when that starts to slow down, people are concerned about the number of immigrants here. And they decide, uh, you know, long because of these, also because of these cultural representations that already see uh, immigrants like Irish, Italian, in very negative ways, that it's time to restrict their immigration. But they aren't as concerned on the East Coast uh, about Mexicans because they're not really thinking about them. But after that 1924 Immigration Act passes, people start to look around and say, hey, wait a minute. We, we, we put Italians on these immigration quotas but not Mexicans? Mm -hmm. And they were very cognizant and and vocal about that we as scholars today call a racial hierarchy, that races are actually put like in a hierarchy in the U.S. Um, They were very cognizant that Mexicans would not be higher than Italians in that racial hierarchy. And so it didn't make sense to them. But even though there were people that tried to fight that, there were a lot of other groups that wanted to continue Mexican immigration, just like today, because they knew they needed their labor. There were agricultural leaders, railroad leaders. Right. I mean, this is nineteen twenty you know, the late nineteen twenties. The Imperial Valley, um, much of California has now been connected to irrigation systems.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, if we still think of California as the breadbasket of the nation, well, they needed people to work those crops and they used all these analogies for Mexicans. They talked about them in biological ways. They talked about how they had the ability to do stoop labor. They talked about how they, because they were they were shorter and could squat easier, um, more easily. They talked about how they could withstand heat um, of 110 degrees, and the white man could not do that. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, these same stereotypes um, were used against Japanese just 10 years earlier
2: mm-hmm. when the
1: Alien Land Law Act passed. And so, again, this is, a racial script, but with a very different outcome, and that's why we always have to understand the con the context, and that's why it's not so easy to just call it a stereotype. So um, when they were debating uh, Japanese immigrants and what their place would be in the nineteen tens in the U.S., uh, they were you know many people, especially white farmers, were upset about how successful Japanese farmers were.
2: Right. They
1: could you know take a, a acreage of land. That was not very productive, but they could work it really hard and they could grow very labor-intensive crops. And so the discourse around them was that they had an unfair advantage over the white farmer because they mm-hmm. used to do labor, because they could squat, because they were closer to the ground, because they could subsist on rice, not meat. All of these same kind of stereotypes that, that they then used to let Mexicans continue immigrating uh, were used to pass the alien law, land law acts um, in the 1910s against Asians but in uh, southern california that was very much against japanese but said that said that they couldn't own or they couldn't own land and they couldn't lease it for more than 3 years in a row right
0: and with these with the some of the other examples of the racial scripts that you use and and how they can even compete in, uh, against each other um, coming from either an, a proponent uh, of Mexican migration or an opponent, um, that they could actually, you know, contradict each other in ways. So first, one of the things that you mentioned is the comparisons. One of the racial scripts was comparisons to slavery that uh, that was driven by, you know, these nativists that were trying to curtail Mexican migration and stoke fears of either popular, I'm sorry, population explosion, miscegenation, right? So, you know, intermarriage and intersexual relations between the, the races, uh, biological inferiority. And so that was used as a script by uh, again, nativists, but then, those say, that were tied to the industries that would benefit from Mexican labor uh, used uh, another racial script, that being uh, the birds of passage. Could you talk a little bit about how these racial scripts can be used um, from, you know, both proponents or opponents of you know the side, uh, various sides of these immigration debates?
1: Sure. So um, for slavery, uh, you know, one thing to remember is that California is the hotbed of eugenics at this point in time. Uh, We often think of eugenics as something that happened, you know, in Nazi Germany, 1930s, something that happened over there, not here. Mm -hmm. But uh, eugenics was a way of thinking about racial betterment, of how you could improve the nation. Uh, And so it wasn't this kind of, like, back room, dark conversation. People never revealed that they were eugenicists. It was seen as a progressive science for some at the time. And there were institutes in Pasadena, institutes at Stanford. Um, you know, very prominent, uh, leaders in California, uh, in Sacramento who, you know, thought of themselves as eugenicists or who also just, um, espoused and, and, um, you know, proposed their ideas. And so the same kinds of rhetoric that you saw around slavery, uh, were then used as a reason to say, hey, wait a minute, we need to um, be careful about who let into this country, meaning Mexican immigrants. And so they would often use examples from slavery. And look, you know, everybody thought that slavery was a a good idea because it was cheap labor. But at the time that slavery, importing slaves was banned, Um, importing slaves was banned before slavery was banned. So um, importing slaves was banned in the... um, Mid, or early 1800s versus slavery being banned uh, in 1865. And they pointed out that the number of slaves at that time versus the number of slaves in 1865, 50 years, about 50 years earlier, had exploded and that the same thing could happen for Mexicans, um, you know, I, ideas about intermarriage, you know, and what that could mean not just for the people who intermarried, but the entire racial stock of the country you know it was this this real like race baiting that would happen mm-hmm. and um, many uh, proponents of Mexican immigration would argue, but you know slaves slaves were brought here, and they didn't have a way to go back. Mexicans are in a very different situation. they are what they call birth of passage. they will come here, they will do the work, and they will leave you know it's it's uh kind of unofficial guest worker program that they were advocating. Mm -hmm. And so they were, you know, they'll come here, let's do those work, and they'll leave. But what, um, and in the first place, that was never quite true. Um, Camille Guerin-Gonzalez talks about this in her book, that if you look at the numbers, there was always a number, you know, Twenty twenty-five percent of the population that was a permanent population that would stay, that was, you know, of, of those people that would not return.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: what happens after 1924 to show that they're not a permanent population is that people really start to focus, opponents really start to focus, not just on men as laborers, but on their families. Mm-hmm. And so one of the really um, persuasive ways of showing that Mexicans are a dangerous population is focusing on women and Right. These are people, and, and the headlines were, they bring their women and children too. And so they started focusing on birth rates.
2: Right. And
1: so here in the 1910s, when they wanted this labor, uh, there were Americanization programs set up for Mexican families. Come learn English. Come learn um, how to cook American dishes. Come mm-hmm. to our public health clinics, and we want to make sure that you understand birthing techniques. Um, in case you have an at-home birth, and we want to make sure that you're connected to the local nurse, and we want to make sure that your children is receiving vaccines. But after 1924, it became the exact opposite. Now it was a concern that Mexican women were having too many children. The birth rates had not changed. And so that's a, a really good example of that kind of cultural representation. Birds of passage is a cultural representation that makes the Mexican population seem innocuous. The um, women and children, as a beaconed population, is a cultural representation that makes them seem like a dangerous population.
0: Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, the focus on women and children, and and in your book, this this seems to be a shift. And you, I don't know if this was actually the way it, you, it happened in the documents, but. Um, it seemed that after numerous attempts to um, try to uh, limit uh, Mexican migration through changes in immigration naturalization policy, uh, natives then directed, as you mentioned here, their attention towards uh, women and children, particularly along the issue of birthright citizenship. And this occurred somewhat around, I believe, in the early 1930s. Uh, So in particular, non-white women and their children became the focus of legislative debates surrounding the transferability of birthright citizenship from mother to child. Uh, Will you discuss what you call in in the book uh, the long history of birthright citizenship and that debate? And in particular, you connect three seemingly disparate cases, that being the 14th Amendment, a, an important Supreme Court decision, the Wong Kim Ark decision, and then the Cable Act of 1922, and why it's essential to look at all three of those together when we're talking about this history of race-making and citizenship in the United States.
1: Sure. So, uh, during the Depression in the 1930s in the U.S., you know, uh, as we all know, people were out of work, um, were very much suffering, but we also know through Chicano history that Mexicans became scapegoats for that, um, for those woes, for Mm -hmm. uh, people being unemployed, especially in places in the Southwest. And so there became this move to return Mexicans to Mexico, um, and even those that had been born here, you know, many of them children. And so part of what comes up during that time as well in the 1930s is this. Uh, debate about birthright citizenship. And now the debate happens apart from the depression discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I but I want to set that up first because we need to remember that that's happening. Right. And so uh, the debate is in response to this Cable Act uh, that occurs in 1922, and it's this idea that uh, women before had been if they married uh, white or American women, women with American citizenship, who married men who were non-citizens lost their citizenship. How, you wonder? This seems crazy, but it's the idea of, you know, femme covert. It's, you know, the man is the head of the household. Uh, Just like she becomes a Mrs., you know, John Smith, she also takes on (laughs) Mr. John Smith's citizenship. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is very problematic for American women who... Uh, want to you know uh, marry? Are are living in London and marry a, a British person, and they want to. And then if they get divorced or they just want to come back in the U.S., they'd like their citizenship. So the Cable Act repairs that. But what it doesn't deal with um, are are a few other things that you know still need to be addressed. And one of them is that if that same American citizen, let's say again that Mrs. John Smith who marries a British uh, national in London, let's say they have a child together while in London and she knows that they're eventually going to come back and settle in the U.S. She's saying, you know, if I'm in London, I still want to be able to give my child my citizenship. Mm -hmm. Everybody thinks like, well, that makes sense. What's the big deal? And so there's this move to pass that. But what, is, what also happens is now we do have people on the West Coast, you know, probably uh, learning from the, the lessons of the 1924 Immigration Act that they should be more vocal, and they say, wait a minute, we're not just talking about Mrs. John Smith, we're talking about Mrs. Juan Sanchez also, mm-hmm. that Mexican-American woman who married a Mexican man and lost her citizenship and is now living in Mexico, and what if she raises... Ten children over there, and then wants to bring them all back because you made them a citizen. Or what if we deported them, and then you know it deported Mrs. Juan Sanchez, and then wants to bring these children back. So again, they played on these same kinds of fears of this racial suicide. Um, and so all that is very important to see how discourse around immigration is is working. But we also need to, to widen the lens to think back to how did birthright citizenship even happen? Right. This is something that not every country has. Mm-hmm. So what I go back and, and I try to do kind of a genealogy of that term, of that that privilege, and show that birthright citizenship happens through the 14th Amendment after slavery is abolished and people want... Um, are are trying to trying to figure out, well, now that slavery is abolished, are African Americans, our former slaves, are they going to be citizens? What happened? Right. And so they passed the fourteenth Amendment, which is, you know, directed at everybody um who's black or white is supposed to be a, a citizen under it. So it deliberately, you know, um is is excluding uh Native Americans who they mm-hmm. know um are living there. But then this test keeps getting, uh, or this, this act keeps getting put, amendment keeps getting put to the test as different groups come to the U.S. Right. So Wang Kim Ark is one of these. Um, you know, Chinese, of Chinese descent, but born in the U.S., goes back and vis- visits China, and when he comes back, is not allowed in, because he's Chinese, and Chinese aren't allowed to immigrate. And he says, wait a minute, I was born here. And they're like, yeah, but you're Chinese. Doesn't matter if you're born here. And so this becomes a case that goes to the Supreme Court. Um, And so what I try to argue in the book is the ways in which um, birthright citizenship is made available to Mexicans is first because of the rights bestowed on African Americans and then because of the ways in which other non-white groups, specifically in the Wong Kim art, help pry that door open just a little bit more for other groups. So oftentimes the rights that that groups get aren't because they alone fought for them, it's an accumulation of different groups fighting for those same kinds of rights. And it's just another reason why we need to see the commonalities amongst these groups, why groups themselves need to see those commonalities so that they can work together rather than at odds with one another.
0: Definitely. And what I appreciate is how you, I think you even begin, um, <clears throat> I think it's your introduction, um, by showing still how, how relevant this history is. Yeah. You talk about the, um, you know, the, the, uh, the Obama birther issue, um, as to, you know, his, the challenges that Donald Trump posed against his citizenship. And as well as you connected that with the, uh, more recent developments in, uh Arizona after they passed their anti-immigrant le- legislation SB 1070 where they tried to again attack the birthright citizenship um, provisions uh, for children of Mexican immigrants. So these issues are still very much alive and that's one of the the themes that I appreciate that that runs throughout the whole book. Uh a lot of the issues that you touch on I you know I, I all you need to do is flip on the news today and you can see that these are still issues that are hotly debated and contested.
1: Yeah, you know, I was thinking about that. Um, I've been writing this piece, and I know um, we'll we'll talk about this a little bit later. But um, since we're talking about it now, I'll, I'll just bring up this one part of it, which is, I you know, the Donald Trump story before he started running for president is was that he was asking to see Obama's birth certificate, right? He was one of the main proponents of that Obama was not born in the U.S. that right. he was born, and um, this is a story that kind of gone away now with his recent presidential bid, But of course, as we know, in his recent presidential bid, the first statement he made was about, you know, Mexicans being a burden to the U.S. Mm-hmm. About how they're not sending their best. They're not sending you. Uh, they're sending criminals. Mm-hmm. Sort of. The next day, after just receiving a storm of criticism, instead of backing down at all, you know, Trump doubles down. And he says, oh, come on, you know. Um, they, they are sending criminals and drug dealers, and they're sending disease. And as somebody who, you know, whose first book was on um, thinking about how science and medicine and public health have shaped our idea, ideas about disease, it, that really gave me pause because this is not, you know, after 1924 when we have these eugenicists trying to change the Immigration Act. Um, this is not 1924 when people kind of, uh, either just didn't think about Mexicans or didn't think about them as dangerous as these European immigrants they'd put on quotas. By now, Mexicans in U.S. society are pretty much criminalized as illegal and, and drug dealers. And I thought, why do we still need this trope of diseased at this time? Right. You know, And part of it is that way in which we need to continue to have these internal borders, these social and cultural borders that the book has you know, going back to um, 1848, when when the U.S. annexes a third of Mexico's land, but especially between 1924 and 1965, the the main body of the book um, looks at the time period when, which which uh, what I call an immigration regime about right. where all these laws and stereotyped cultural representations really accumulate to help build it, and yet here it is, 2015, and Trump is still. Um, using the same rhetoric. And so it's not surprised. then, you know, a month later after after this, he starts to call for the end of birthright citizenship. Mm-hmm. And I've been tracking this since um, I wrote the book. You know, I get Google alert alerts on birthright citizenship and different topics that I wrote about in the book. Just because I am interested, like you just said, um, oh, we still open our newspaper and see this. And there are other terms that I even forget which Google alert alerts I put on because I rarely get them. But I get a Google alert about birthright citizenship every day. Mm
2: -hmm. Every
1: day there's a newspaper, even if it's a small one in South Carolina or, you know, a local one in Florida, they are writing about birthright citizenship and are there ways to figure it and is it fair to give it to everybody? This is something that is going to become a major issue in this presidential campaign.
0: Right and in referring to the this immigration regime um the book seems to split it in kind of two parts there's the the first part where these um the 1920s 1930s um a period i believe referred to as a long immigration debate era uh where um it Mexicans, I'm sorry, uh, nativists. So, and that, that include, you know, uh, right. Legislators includes people in, you know, certain interest groups that are trying to promote their racial homogeneity or their vision of a racially homogenized, uh, United States, where they're striving to show that Mexicans are unfit or ineligible for citizenship, primarily through legislative means and policy changes. Then in the 1940s and 1950s, there's another way that this, that, uh, you know, mixes are, 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 are tried to be portrayed as unfit. And there's a new tool that seems to be developed. It's, it's a, a tool that had existed before, that being deportation, but not as much relied on. And, and so, uh, referring to two of the primary scripts that get used in this period, in this latter half of the, the immigration regime, the 1940s, and 1950s, uh, one you mentioned is concerned over public health and, in the book, you refer this to you refer to this as a type of medical racial profiling of Mexicans, and then the the other is the um, you know this terminology of wetback and undocumented and illegal uh, enters also the racial lexicon um, in of the United States, and so these two kind of terms are are, are become more frequently associated with Mexican immigrants um again the concerns over public health is sort of me- medical racial profiling and then the issue of um Mexicans being wetbacks and undocumented and illegal uh so you mentioned that a third part of the your focus on racial scripts is that there is a counterscript narrative that seeks to you know um it's it's the agency part of the story right where um Mexicans not just Mexicans but their allies uh, being them Japanese American or African American uh, or uh, other ethnic European Americans, uh, that they they pr- present a counter-narrative or a counter-script challenges, that is, to the sense that Mexicans are either wetbacks or that they are somehow, you know, diseased. Can you talk uh, about some of those examples that you bring up a little bit later in the book? Um, like I said, in particular, what I'm thinking here is... Uh, you know, some of the examples that refer more to the counterscripts that Mexican-Americans and their allies start to produce during this time to, you know, fight these very, again, racist terminology that is continuing to emerge and evolve, uh, but then it's also being coupled with immigration sweeps like Operation Wetback and and things of that sort.
1: Sure. Um, yeah, definitely that's, uh, that post-war period is just fascinating in terms of seeing how that category of Mexican evolved. You know, we need to remember that uh, after the mid-1940s, Mexican Americans really became a more permanent and visible part of US society. This is when there's a demographic shift.
2: This is when
1: there are more Mexican Americans than Mexican immigrants, especially in, in cities that have been receiving cities for immigration for a long time like Los Angeles. And uh, we often think about the civil rights struggles happening in the 1960s, but historians for a long time now have been pushing us to think about the long civil rights history and really pushing back to World War II and even uh, to the Depression when people started joining unions and fighting for their rights in different ways. And so during World War II, you have Mexican-American World War II soldiers returning home and like their African-American counterparts, they're demanding democracy and equality. I mean, Mexican Americans are waging and winning civil rights battles, such as the precedent-setting Mendez versus West, Westminster school desegregation case, mm-hmm. and this predates Brown v. Board.
2: Right. And
1: so, when Brown v. Board happens, um, it's those people that helped fight for uh, Brown v. Uh,
2: uh,
1: Mendez versus Westminster that wrote letters of support. Um, I'm blanking out on the legal term right now. That, do you know what, what the legal term is? The Friends of the Court letter?
0: The Amicus, um, amicus Curie. Am I, thank you, right? yes.
1: Um, and they write letters of support for Brown v. Board. Um, you know, so they're doing all these things to fight for their rights, and it's just another example of despite that, you know, all all these assimilation narratives would have us believe that these groups, you know, once they're entrenched in mainstream society, that they'll become assimilated, they actually remain outsiders.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And part two of the book is really trying to say that the narrative of Mexican does not pull citizens was continuously reinscribed and regenerated. Um, just again, showing how, how um, they would continue to be seen as outsiders and how terms like wetback would help define them in this new era what i what I want to show through counterscripts was that um, they weren't alone now, you know now with the populations growing it's, um, our ability as historians to get different kinds of sources by this time sometimes it's a little bit you know harder to get um, sources that show things outside of the community you know, not left by the community and so one of the examples of counterscripts that I have is that it's during this period in nineteen fifty four uh, that we have the Bracero program in the U.S., which runs from 1942 to 1954, the guest worker program. It's supposed to fill the uh, labor shortages of World War II. Uh, but, you know, by the 50s, we're having a recession. This program has gone on longer than people thought. Mm-hmm. And there's also undocumented immigration that accompanies the documented immigration. And so people start, um, the government it enacts a, a program to deport Mexicans. Uh, from, uh, you know, that, that, the undocumented population that stemmed from these changes, these demographic changes. And the focus, the purpose to focus on is one that's actually called Operation Web, it's by the government and it's called Operation Web Act. And it happens in Los Angeles. And, um It happened in a place that we all know very well. If you're from Los Angeles, you're Mm -hmm. in there, Dodger Stadium, uh, before Dodger Stadium was built. And for people that study Chicano history, Latino history, they know that before Dodger Stadium was built, there was Chavez Ravine. There was a vibrant Mexican neighborhood there, mixed uh, mixed ethnic and racial neighborhood, predominantly Mexican neighborhood there, that was promised public housing if they sold their homes and they never received. It because it was then seen as a socialist experiment. So this is already a very contested space. Right. Operation Wetback happens. Um, you know, people are rounded out of their homes, um, workplaces, bars. This is the other thing. It's like, oh, they're burdens to society. And one of the main places that they go to um, look for <laughs> undocumented immigrants are at their workplace,
0: right, the job site,
1: right? <laughs> and so they, you know, they. Um, they arrest them, they detain them, and they put them in these detention camps, these makeshift detention camps in, uh, in Dodger Stadium in Elysian Park uh, before Dodger Stadium is built. And in uh, the newspaper accounts, there are there are gr- groups like the Los Angeles Committee for the Protection of Foreign Born, mm-hmm. who themselves are an interracial coalition. So it's not, you know, a Mexican advocacy group. It's made up of uh, Unitarian ministers, you know, Black Baptists, um, Charlotta Bass, the African American newspaper that heard their, um, editor and leader, Charlotta Bass, um, you know, their Jewish lawyers. I mean, just this incredibly, um, generous, multiracial coalition in the LA Committee of Protection for the Foreign Born who are fighting for their rights, saying this is unfair, you know, you can't do this to people. And so they're protesting, and they protest at City Hall. They're writing them letters to the INS. They're setting up a 24, an office that's open 24 hours in East Los Angeles in case somebody's family member was taken away in the middle of the night. And um, that office becomes under surveillance, it becomes under surveillance by the INS, and they start to track anybody that's even in a four-block radius of it. So, you know, you see just like how any activity to support immigrant rights are criminalized. And in one of these protests that happens, there's a group of African-American men out there, and they talk about how unfair these practices are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, is this fair to do to a group that has been here? Um, their, their land was theirs. And, you know, what happened? These immigration cops do this to them. And, you know, different, different things that they say like this, which are fascinating. What I try to show in my analysis of it is that those men often had a very similar history to those Mexican workers. You know, after slavery, uh, there were a lot of, you know, African Americans didn't come under guest worker programs in the same way, but they were put under these uh, uh, codes, these labor codes, where mm-hmm. if they were on a farm and they worked on a farm and didn't receive permission to leave that farm, they could be jailed, which basically meant that they would go back to uh, the plantation where they had been working before, right. and it was now a prison, and they would farm that area, or they would be leased out um, to you know, other farmers to do their work. Uh, they talk about immigration cops also kind of you know bringing up that contested relationship between communities of color
2: mm-hmm. and the
1: police. Uh, so there's lots of And and just the fact that they they were only a couple generations removed from slavery, from forced labor. So there's lots of, you know, connections that you start to see in community newspapers that people start making on their own that seem to invoke these racial scripts.
0: Right. And you also mentioned how uh, some of the members of the Jewish community, which were also, you know, participating in this very uh, multi-ethnic coalition, uh, that being the L.A. Commission, again, for the protection of of the foreign born, how they, too, could draw connections right through that experience, seeing a you know, makeshift type of detention camp thrown up in the middle of Los Angeles, uh, naturally had, could spark, uh, memories of, you know, their own family history and those experiences of, you know, discrimination and racial oppression. And in a place like Los Angeles, that ended up in this very multi-ethnic type of coalition where people could relate to, that shared experience of racialization, and thereby this provided a, a window to one of those rare windows that we get um, in the historical record where a bunch of groups saw that commonality. And uh, so I appreciate how your use of racial scripts is able to show both sides. It show, it's able to show the process of racialization that is typically viewed as being act, enacted upon um, non-white groups, but then also this concept of counterscripts and counterscripting is, you know, a uh, term used to address the various ways that then that can be pushed back against, and that can be either be in forms of activism or other types of uh, support. And uh, so, I think that's a that's just an essential part of this story, and I appreciated it very much. Uh, also, um, we're coming towards the uh, you know the, the, our time limit here. But I want to talk, uh, perhaps, wrap up our discussion talking about the usefulness of this concept of racial scripts today. And supposedly, we've we've started to talk a bit about uh, Obama a little while earlier, and uh, the whole debate over his birth certificate. But um, again, Obama, Obama, and you mentioned this in the ending of the book, is used as kind of a symbol by I think a, a lot on the right to point to the fact that we live in a colorblind society, right? That we're beyond, we're in a post-racial period. We've elected a black president and uh, thereby we don't need any type of affirmative um, type of policies that seek to um, rectify past wrongs or even just acknowledge, you know, the existence of uh, forms of institutional racism. So what is it that, you know, this discussion that we've been having in your book that brings out um, this, the historical process of, you know, relational race-making Um how can our understanding of racial scripts help us to understand this contemporary situation again we're supposed to be beyond this uh, this racial period?
1: I think one of the important things is just remembering that when we talk about racial scripts, you know one big part of that definition is the structural part um, you know the laws, the policies, and those simply don't go away after um, you know nineteen sixty five with even Aggressive civil rights legislation. Um, and as we know, much of that legislation, especially around the Voting Rights Act, is being pulled back. And so, you know, that part doesn't go away. There's right. the, the cultural representation parts that don't go away. With, you know, I mentioned the disease uh, tropes that that Trump, Trump talked about. Um, so in response to those, that, those statements, I've been working on an article that says, you know, why, or, you know, I've Different it. but one thing is. uh, Well, let me let me backtrack. So there's uh, with the Affordable Care Act, for example, uh, Mm -hmm. Latinos were very. uh, They were one of the lowest number uh, groups. They were of the the different racialized groups that they tracked: uh, Asians, Blacks, Whites, and Latinos. Latinos had the lowest participation rates in the Affordable Care Act, and people couldn't figure out why is this. So they went back into studies and, you know, a lot of the newspaper coverage about it was, well, they might not, you know, and it's only for, for documented immigrants um, mm-hmm. and citizens. Right. And so they're not talking about undocumented, but one of the things I said was maybe it's language. Uh, maybe they don't know how to use the computer and the internet. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, and it's just, the, again, it's kind of a colorblind argument. It completely ignores this whole history of the ways in which Mexicans have been racialized as disease carriers. Um, as welfare chiefs, or why would they want to go <laughs> and sign up for a government program? Um, it's The other part that surprised me is, you know, I read the paper every morning, and as I would be reading these articles, about, and I'm very old-fashioned, I still read the print edition, <laughs> so as I was reading these articles about why aren't Latinos signing up for the Affordable Care Act, it would be next to these articles about uh, Obama being the president who has deported more more immigrants than anybody else, more than, right. than, you know, his Republican predecessor before. And so we need to see the ways in which all this scaffolding of race, all these laws, um, you know, those are in place, but also just the the community memory of them is scary mm-hmm. to people. It doesn't go away just because you say it's a colorblind society. Right. Um, you know, and I think there are other ways in which we also see that, the, the counter scripts around this they are very empowering. So we can look at the Black Lives Matter campaign, and the ways in which that was built very—you know—deliberately and effectively, and the ways in which, as other—you know—communities felt um, that they've been unfairly targeted, also then that. that kind of campaign, you know, Muslim lives matter, Latino lives matter, Mm -hmm. and people know what that means right away without it having to be built up in the same way,
2: Mm -hmm. and it's
1: another example of the way that we can really benefit from those counterscripts today.
0: That's a great point, and uh, particularly, you know, your emphasis on the institutional Manifestations of, of racism and of the history of race in the United States. the the analogy I've heard you use it a few times, and you you, you write it in the in the, the introduction to the book that that you know the institutional um, forms of racism form that uh, scaffolding, as you say, upon which then cultures uh, and ideas about race tend to form, uh, is something that uh, that really appeals to me and it rings true. I think particularly it, you know it depends on your experience, but as you know, I drive through living in Los Angeles, we're part of Los Angeles. I live up in Pasadena, if you will. And so I got to drive through the 110 freeway, right? And, and as I've been made that drive, um, oftentimes with either members of a family or colleagues or just uh, other people, it's, it, you tend to look along the 110 freeway and, and, uh, I start to thinking about the different types of de- development that you're able to see. And you can see as you cross into different communities and, um, of the, the, the change that you're going through in regards to class, right. And, and resources and, and a lot of my discussions in race with friends and colleagues, you know, issue around that, uh, are centered around that, that, uh, desire to understand how is that, you know, how does that happen? How, how does one community, you know, seemingly surrounded by these other either stand out as affluent or stand out as, you know, um, completely disinvested and and falling apart. And it is those structural forces. And so that's a key part uh, of this narrative and of your explanation of racial scripts of how these ideas have, you know, uh, evolved over time, but ring so true today, even our, in, you know, the supposed colorblind society that we live in. Um, things are different. Yes. But the, the manifestations, you know, seem to, they, they are there just under the surface as to why many of these inequalities continue to exist. So I appreciate you bringing that out and, and taking the time to discuss with us um, both your concept of racial scripts and the examples that you bring out the book. I think they're, uh, of course, incredibly timely and very prescient to um, the current debates that are going on. As I mentioned earlier, we're a little bit out of time pretty much, but I would like to give you a moment to talk a bit about uh, any new work that you're doing. I, I, I'm not trying to put any pressure on you, push you into another work, but I'm, uh, I'm sure you're working on something else. Uh, could you talk a little bit uh, about what that might be?
1: Sure. Um, I'll tell you about one project uh, because I'd love if anybody's listening to this and has anything to, uh, uh, to say about it uh, that I would love to be contacted about it um, because it's actually a very different project than the kind of work that I've done before. Mm. It's, um, it's a project about a neighborhood in Los Angeles called Echo Park. And I've written an article on it called the importance of place and placemakers in the Los Angeles life of a lot, or I'm sorry, the importance of place- placemakers in the life of a Los Angeles community which gentrification erases from Echo Park. Mm-hmm. And it's the exact reason that you just said So uh, it's a, you just said it was a perfect segue that, you know, we, we drive through Los Angeles and we think of some neighborhoods as hip and cute and trendy and I want to go get, you know, a latte there. And right. other neighborhoods as ooh, those are ghetto, those are dangerous, why don't those people clean up their street? And Echo Park was one of those neighborhoods um, for a time being and now it's being gentrified. Mm-hmm. And, you know, long-term residents have been um uh, priced out.
2: Right. There's
1: been entire apartment buildings where people have had to move. Um, You know, they they need to move very far. You know, Lots of areas around there have been gentrified. Uh But the article and, you know, the, the larger project, it's a book project that I'm working on now, is actually saying even before this time period where it was thought of as a ghetto, it was actually a really progressive place. Um, It was a very, you know, it has a long history. It was founded in the late 1800s, and it became kind of a haven for artists, for bohemian types, for gays, for white liberals, white communists, um, white progressives, immigrant groups. And they, you know, formed different kinds of institutions. They didn't open up um, just places that sold very expensive coffee. They also opened up law centers, bookstores that did readings. Uh, different kinds of nonprofit uh, nonprofit child care. And, you know, it, it, what I, the argument I make in the article is, you know, we have this argument about um, the possessive investment of whiteness that George Lipsitz makes and the ways in which uh, certain policies after World War II and after you know, um, the establishment of the welfare state in the 1930s, especially around Federal Housing Administration and government subsidized loans benefited whites and they were able to move into the suburbs, and African-Americans and others were not because of discrimination against them, so that, you know, something some incredible number, like 98% of those loans went to whites.
2: Um,
1: But what you see in Echo Park was a lot of whites decided to stay and help these kinds of community institutions and grassroots institutions. And this went on from generation to generation. And um, I'm not trying to paint it as some kind of utopia, but there's definitely something unique there, something special there. And I'm trying to get at it through this uh, large network of Mexican restaurants that that I argue are um, urban institutions. They're forms of public space Mm. in which ethnic entrepreneurs act as placemakers. Mm -hmm. And they've been kind of the museums, the the history holders, the memory holders for these communities, and they're being erased now because of that gentrification. And so I want to see what made Echo Park such a special place, what what were the ways in which we saw groups work together, how is looking at uh, uh, restaurants as urban institutions and forms of public space a lens to do this, and what are we missing if we don't have this conversation and we let gentrification continue without um, asking, how will we continue this in this new phase of neighborhoods like Echo Park?
0: Right. now, that, And that rings so close to home. Um, I mentioned that drive down the 110. Uh, one of the things that we noticed recently in the past couple of years, my wife and I, was the um, just the proliferation of homeless encampments that uh, you just can't miss anymore. It seems, right now it looks a little bit better than it was a few months ago, but it was just astounding um, as we drove down the 110, how many uh, homeless shelters were, were you know, temporary shelters were were put up. And it just seemed to me before, you know, I actually read an article that confirmed it in the L.A. Times that it looked like communities were living there, and I was just blown away. And then I found this article in the L.A. Times, and it it confirmed that, you know, this issue of gentrification had priced out long-term residents in the Highland Park area. And there were streets, I mean, portions of communities that did, in fact, move along the royal and they formed their own sense of, uh, you know, community with these homeless encampments. And they were kind of, you know, policing their own little parts and not, you know, letting people into that little encampment if they weren't, uh, from a particular street or, or area. But that issue of gentrification has, a, is very real, you know, particularly in LA and we, we see it happening a lot. So, uh, I very much look forward to that piece. And again, I encourage our listeners to, uh, get your book to, to read it and really content- contemplate its message and, again, the, the usefulness uh, of, for looking at um, the history of race in America through relational lens. So thank you again, Natalia, for your time. Appreciate it so much.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for tuning in to New Books and Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel, and I hope you have enjoyed my conversation with Natalia Molina, author of How Race is Made in America, Immigration, Citizenship, and the Historical Power of of Racial Scripts, published by the University of California Press in 2014. I encourage you to get a copy of Professor Molina's book. You may do so by clicking on the Amazon link on our New Books and Latino Studies page. Also, if you'd like to contact us, please send us an email at studies at gmail.com or comment and follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Thank you.